The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We begin with a quote from Shakespeare scholar and friend of the podcast, Emma Smith. Quote, Pre-modern critical race studies is the most significant call to action for all Shakespeareans right now. David Sterling Brown's intervention is timely, unflinching, and provocative. It advances the field by bringing forward the figure of the white other and draws together critical, personal, and experiential modes of reading. End quote. The figure of the white other in Shakespeare. What exactly does that mean? We'll talk to David Sterling Brown about it today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Excited to talk to you today. We've got a great show with a very compelling scholar, David Sterling Brown, and I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. And often we close with a little dessert of a My Last Book. Maybe kick things off with an appetizer of Emily Dickinson. And, well, you know what? I was going to say let's switch them around, but why mess with a good thing? You don't want chocolate cake and then your entree and then your, your plate of calamari, do you? Even if you've done it that way a thousand times before, appetizer, entree, dessert, well, why mess with a good thing? So onward we go. Back 150 years or so to the land of Emily before we leap back even further to the land of Elizabeth. This week, or today I should say, we're up to uh, poem 259. Last time I joked that we'd either have the Bible or bees or death. Well, it's death all the way down this time. <laughs> death in the form of a curious metaphor. Let's do our sandwich-style analysis, urged upon us by a listener. We'll hear the poem, then we'll do the analysis, and then we'll hear the poem again. This is Emily Dickinson, number 259. A clock stopped, not the mantles. Geneva's farthest skill can't put the puppet bowing that just now dangled still. An awe came on the trinket. The figures hunched with pain then quivered out of decimals into degreeless noon. It will not stir for doctors, this pendulum of snow. The shopman importunes it, while cool, concernless no nods from the gilded pointers, nods from seconds slim, decades of arrogance between the dial life and him. Okay, I think I have all of this one. I think I'm following all of it. I have a couple of questions. Let's dig into it. We have here a stopped clock. Something sad about that, isn't there? I mean, maybe maybe this isn't so familiar for people under a certain age, where they see mostly digital clocks. But for those of us who are a little older, we remember those clock faces. That's all we had can remember when digital came about. It was so cool. And I, I bought a stereo that one of the, the key things was that it had digital numbers, which I thought would be very cool as I turned the knob and watched the digital numbers climb. And then it turned out that they were digital numbers, but they were just frozen on a wheel. And you just spun the dial around and you were just moving, moving the numbers. Anyway, we're talking about clocks here. 
not stereo uh, uh, AM, FM numbers. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, growing up in my half-Swiss home, we had plenty of clocks, including a cuckoo clock, and it had to be wound. There was three long chains that we would pull to raise the heavy metal weights that were fashioned to look like pine cones. And those would gradually drop, and our clock would cuckoo like an insane interrupter, sometimes shocking the hell out of us if the house was quiet. Someone might come over to deliver some bad news, let's say. A hush falls over the living room. I'm sorry to be the bad news, but our beloved Aunt Sheila has died. Cuckoo! 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 <laughs> and then the song, dun, 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 dun. Oh, with the door snapping shut afterwards, click. But we loved that clock. And if you let the pine cones run down too far, those chains on their chains, the clock would slow and lose time. And if we went on vacation when we returned, it was the worst of all. The cones. They're just drooping down. They dangled against the floor. The hands of the clock were still frozen in place, marking the moment when the clock had died. Well, Emily Dickinson picks up on this, that a clock that's moving of its own accord, seemingly, will run out and stop. She says, this isn't the clock on my mantle, but it's a clock in a shop window. A smallish clock, if we're to take the word trinket seriously. And she says, Geneva's finest. Geneva, Switzerland. Clock shopman sounds like he's Swiss. He can't get the puppet going, the bowing puppet. I'm picturing those clocks that have a pendulum up above, maybe, going back and forth. Maybe it's designed as a little person, so it looks like a puppet. Back and forth and back and forth, bowing, Bowing, leaning back, bowing, leaning back. What happens when all that stops? Well, it dangles. Still, well, dangles. Okay, there's that word. So maybe it is a pendulum underneath the clock. Anyway, it was a puppet that bowed. Now it's just inert. It's a dead puppet pendulum. What does that do to the clock? It's frozen in time. Literally, I guess. An awe comes over it. Figures hunch with pain. What are those figures? Are those numbers on the clock? Or figures like little ornaments? Like the glockenspiel? I'm not sure. They're quivering, though, as if the clock has just stopped. We've seen the death. We are right in the aftermath of it. Or maybe it stopped and we imagine the quiver because we know there should be movement. Our eyes are playing tricks on us. They want to see the movement forward but then they resign themselves. There's no movement there, is there? We supply the quiver. Our longing makes it seem real. The hands here seem to be stuck at 12 o'clock. That's how I take degreeless noon. Well, why not midnight? That's the same, isn't it? Well, maybe because midnight would be too masked, too concealed. The clock, the clock might be at rest at midnight. That's bedtime. This is noon when the clock should be awake and alive, and it's not. 
The clock is like the eyes of a corpse, still looking out but seeing nothing now. There's no life behind those eyes. And the shopman arrives like a doctor, trying to get it to stir, trying to coax it back into life, but death doesn't work like that. This pendulum isn't, isn't having a new spring. It's a pendulum of snow, of winter, more death. And so the shopman importunes it, pleads with it, does everything to try to revive it. But what's it get? What, what the shopman gets back from the clock is a no, a concernless no. Not even a no that, that feels bad for what it's doing, that feels guilty, a no that's trying to become a yes. It's just a no. End of discussion. I'm not concerned about being no, I'm just at no, and there's an arrogance to that. Death, the dead body, the dead thing, does not care that we grieve for it, or that we, are, we find it eerie. Death does not care that we've arrived with the doctor, that we're begging it to return to life. The face, the hands, the eyes all say no without any concern at all. So too with the clock. Those gilded pointers and that slim second hand, which once served us so routinely, which once marched to the heartbeat of the earth for our benefit, now just stare back at us, dead and dead and dead. I'll read it once again. A clock stopped, not the mantles. Geneva's farthest skill can't put the puppet bowing that just now dangled still. An awe came on the trinket, the figures hunched with pain, then quivered out of decimals into degreeless noon. It will not stir for doctors, this pendulum of snow. The shopman importunes it, while cool, concernless no nods from the gilded pointers, nods from seconds slim, decades of arrogance between the dial life and him. That was poem 259 in Helen Vendler's Selected Poems of Emily Dickinson. Another fine entry. Okay, we move now to Shakespeare. We know what othering is often, don't we? Those of you who have had a, an English course in college will probably recognize that term. It's the arrogance of us versus them. The them is an outgroup, a minority group, barbarians, someone who is not like us. It can be, or I should say, it has been, because we're talking about history here, it's been based on ethnicity or religion, national origins, sexuality, gender, physical attributes, class, and of course, race. Race has been the source of othering for centuries. And as we've learned about othering, and as people continually turn to literature to find examples of social phenomena like othering, they've found examples in Shakespeare. Some famous ones include Othello and Shylock, we get a window onto Elizabethan England and Shakespeare and ourselves by seeing how a black man and a Jewish man are treated in the play. Of course, 
we need to be careful with a writer as intelligent as Shakespeare because he's writing through the words of characters, through their mouths and minds. And what might be a clear example of prejudice coming from a character might not reflect a prejudice of Shakespeare's. The author might be giving that character that viewpoint in order to demonstrate the dangers of prejudice, for example, or pointing out hypocrisy, or defining a particular character at a particular time. More historical analysis is needed to kind of figure out the context, see what we can learn from that. And now we have David Sterling Brown, who has looked at Shakespeare and his others from a different angle. He said, what about the treatment of white characters? Are they universally included as the us in the us versus them? Or are there white others among the white people? Them's among the us's. And if so, what does that mean? What does it mean for Shakespeare? And what can we learn from it? Shakespeare's White Others with David Sterling Brown after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Dr. David Sterling Brown, an award-winning Shakespeare and critical race studies scholar whose interests include African-American literature, dramatic literature, mental health, gender, performance, sexuality, and the family. He's also a professor of English at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. He's here today to discuss his book, Shakespeare's White Others. David Sterling Brown, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So let's just start with the title. I'm not sure everybody outside of academia will have a concept of the other and why your title points us toward a different approach. It's sort of zagging here instead of zigging. But typically, (laughs) I think we'd expect a book about Shakespeare and the other and race to be about Shakespeare's non-white characters and to say that he has somehow othered them, treated them as different and perpetuated stereotypes and engaged in in racism, either conscious or unconscious, toward them. You're doing something different, I think, but that's kind of what we might ordinarily expect Shakespeare and the other to be. Yes. 
I would absolutely agree with that. And um, there's a book, I believe it's called Shakespeare and the Outsiders, that kind of does that work. So you're absolutely right there. Right. And so here we are. This is the 2.0 version where you say there are white others. So what do you mean by that? So in a nutshell, when I'm thinking about the white other in Shakespeare and drama, I'm looking at this division between characters that pits sort of ideal white characters against non-ideal or less than ideal white mm, characters. Mm -hmm. Explain by that in a second. And so with the white other, I'm essentially identifying that figure as the less than ideal white figure that we encounter in Shakespeare's texts. And it's a figure that allows us to actually see some of the things that you just mentioned as you were talking about the non-white characters and thinking about Shakespeare and just the other. Um, so treating them as different, seeing stereotypes um, sort of emitted through either their actions or behaviors. Uh, but what makes them really interesting and part of the reason why I attach white and other together is that these characters create situations or are in situations in their text in which they are made to embody blackness on mm. some, and it could be spiritual, it could be sartorial, as in clothing, it could be um, even emotional. I mean, we see this with Hamlet, for instance, but it can also be in terms of thinking about death or violence. So just, again, playing up or playing on, rather, stereotypes that we traditionally see in texts like, say, Othello, for instance, um, which is one of Shakespeare's plays with a you know main character who is black. We can see some of those issues that Othello faces mapped onto white characters in other texts as well. Okay, so this is the way I was thinking about this as I was going through your book is I don't know if this example will resonate with you, but I grew up in a small town in the 1970s and 80s. And it was common for us and for everybody, I think it was in pop culture too to use homophobic slurs. People would say, that's gay. Even if we weren't talking about sexuality or gender characteristics or anything like that, like if a, if a teacher assigned homework over the weekend, people might say, oh, that's so gay. And, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, looking back on it, first of all, it had nothing to do with, you know, thinking that the teacher was actually gay or or that the act of assigning homework over the weekend is a, a something that would be limited to gay people or something like that but it was it was creating and reinforcing the in-group and out-group dynamic but on this casual subconscious level so if we were criticizing a teacher or what he or she did we would use something that would actually it was like drive-by othering. It would it would kind of uh, attack gay people who had nothing to do with what we were actually talking about. And it sounds like what you're looking at is something similar in Shakespeare. I like that example, actually, because you're absolutely right in terms of thinking about um, in-group and out-group, as well as thinking about um, superiority and inferiority. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of dichotomy or binary along which we can understand this difference between the white other and those characters that are not identified as white others in these texts. So yes, I like that one a lot that you just mentioned. Right. Yeah. Or or there were racially tinged ones too, where people would say, oh, that's white of you. 
Mm -hmm. Um, It was a little, that was a little outdated by the time uh, I came around, but I know that it was something that, that we would hear or we would still, you'd still read it in some older books or something at at the time. And obviously that's, it's not, I don't think it's too controversial to say that that's perpetuating stereotypes and this kind of dynamic of superiority. And so I am interested in hearing how Shakespeare was doing it. And just to be clear, it sometimes sounds like will apply to physical characteristics, like maybe black hair or darker skin or something, but sometimes it has nothing to do with that. Correct. Yes. And could I just say one thing about what you just said with respect to um, thinking back to, you know, high school and that's so gay and that whole thing, Mm -hmm. you know, what I see in the text, because I think this is relevant, is people who might have been using those terms. And, and when you switch to race, that's where my sort of ears really perked up, um, because I've had that. I'm a black man, for instance. I've had people in the past say, oh, you know, you sound white or or mm. that is and it's really like they're saying, oh, you're being polite or you're using manners. It could be something like that, which is really interesting. Um, but what they're really getting at is that their perception of me and their perception of whiteness is that you know, whiteness is a category that consists of A, B, C, D, right? Mm -hmm. And so on some level in their eyes, I as a black man am embodying A, B, C, D. And so that is allowing them or at least forcing them to make that association with whiteness. And I think that is what happens in these Shakespeare texts as well. We have characters embodying certain qualities in different ways. So is Shakespeare telling us how he viewed white people? Is he building the conception of white identity with these characters, A, B, C, and D? Or how exactly are we supposed to approach Shakespeare's text in this way and kind of figure out what he was up to and what it means for us today? Yeah, so that's a great question. I really thank you for asking that. It's incredibly complex. And so Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my best to try to explain this. And if you need me to elaborate on anything, please let me know. But One, as I was saying, you know, Shakespeare was writing in a particular time for a particular audience. And when we think about putting these plays on the stage, when we think about the need to make a livelihood, right, there is something to be said for appealing to one's audience. Um, And so as we think about um, Elizabethan and Jacobean culture, there were certainly racial tensions mounting in those eras. And I think Shakespeare gives his audience something to look at in terms of, you know, what are the standards that kind of define what whiteness is or what racial whiteness is supposed to represent? And then also, how can we actually and how can we look even within racial whiteness and see that it's also challenged so that Mm. we're not in this binary world where it's black and white, and I'm saying that both in terms of race, but also just in terms of simplicity, um, but it's complex. And so the the way that I look at it, if we were to sort of chart out a line, right, and we're thinking about the racial hierarchy, on one end, you have racial whiteness, on the other end, you have blackness, and then we have all of these other kinds of people in between. But if we add the white other that actually kind of expands how we might think about the racial hierarchy to see that even within whiteness, there are divisions that created that actually help reinforce the supremacy or or alleged supremacy of whiteness, if Mm. that makes sense. Okay, so this is degrees of whiteness, or or maybe we should say it's white-on-white othering. 
Yeah. So there's, there's levels to this. I like the way you put that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's move into some examples so people can kind of see what we're talking about. Who are some uh, Shakespearean characters who would exemplify being at a different point on this spectrum? Sure. So one of my favorite examples that I discuss in the book is that of the Macbeths. So Lady Macbeth and mm. her husband Macbeth. And they're a really easy couple to track because when the play begins, you know, they are um, these figures who are going to be hosting their king. So they are for all intents and purposes, on the right side of what I call in my book the intraracial color line. And that's just helping us see this division between ideal and less than ideal whiteness. Um, but once the Macbeths are complicit in the murder of killing their king, their esteemed domestic guest, um, they become sinners. They become these sort of barbaric, violent figures in the text that are devoid of decorum as well as they violate hospitality code. Um, and so they are not actually doing the expected things one might want to see from somebody who is upholding the standards of what it means to be a good white citizen, so to speak. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Does Shakespeare then start introducing language that kind of drives this point home that, you know, are they referred to as darker or black or something like that? Yes. So great question. Um, in the middle of the play, actually, Macbeth is referred to verbatim as Black Macbeth by Malcolm, who is the son of the uh, deceased king. And that moment I just find so fascinating because it's a very there are so many subtle examples, but that's a very clear example of how blackness is being used. And whether it's symbolic blackness in that moment or, of course, if somebody wants to imagine in their mind Macbeth as being, um, you know, physically black, like mm. they mm -hmm. could. We get that wonderful production with Denzel Washington performing Macbeth, for instance, um, in that the film. But they, these terms are being used in a way that helps drive this point home about the white other and to help us also in that moment distinguish Macbeth from the goodness of Malcolm, for instance, who actually has no blood on his hands in the play. Mm, right. Now, do you think that I, I know listeners, whenever I do a, an episode on a topic like this, I get a lot of listener feedback and a lot of people will say, oh, well, Shakespeare, you know, he's talking about the the dark night of the soul or the blackness of the soiled, you know, something like that. They will find ways to sort of say, well, black isn't really black. It's it's black in this other context or it's metaphorically or something like that. And and how do you respond to that? Well, several of my colleagues and I'm thinking of people like, you know, Ian Smith, Arthur Little, Shakespeare scholars, Kim, Hiffel, you know, they've mapped out these terms and sort of have done that work to get us to see how in the early modern period, you know, those terms were used in racialized ways. Uh, and so if we're thinking about a sooty bosom, for instance, which I believe Claudius says that he has in uh, Hamlet, for instance, these the darkening of these characters, even though it's metaphorical, it still carries meaning that matters in the world in terms of con sort of serving as a vehicle to convey particular messages. So when we look at these characters on a spectrum, right, as you were talking about in-group and out-group earlier, by the end of Macbeth, it's safe to say that Macbeth is part of the out-group <laughs> in that yeah. play. 
Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and Shakespeare does this in other works as well as I talk about in the book. Right. So we, you sort of, you can look at conduct, you can look at the outcome or what Shakespeare does to these characters, how the plot affects them, and also just the descriptors that either other characters make or that we otherwise get from through Shakespeare's dialogue that somehow affects the way that people are understanding these characters. And then it kind of connects back to this idea of a perfect white ideal and a perfect straight white male as being the pinnacle of that ideal. And it kind of subverts that depending on Shakespeare's attitude toward the character at that point in the play. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned conduct, I would say morality, mm. ethics, all of those things can help us see who is and who isn't living up to the standard, so mm -hmm. to speak. There are, there are expectations and there, I would call them social expectations, um, although they could be political if we're thinking about royalty, for instance, but these social expectations, and I mean, we live we live today by social codes of, of different kinds, but these social expectations really do prompt us as readers to think about how the characters are either embodying what is expected or not. And if they are defiant, then the plays oftentimes move in ways to correct that and sometimes that is literally by getting rid of a character in terms of actually killing them all. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more about Shakespeare and White Others. Okay, we are back. So why don't we go through your book a little bit? Why don't you tell us how your book is structured and what the individual chapters focus on? And, and maybe tell us, was it difficult to select here or did these chapters kind of naturally fall out as being the obvious ones that you wanted to focus on? That is such a tough question. Because <laughs> <laughs> it definitely took a long time to get this thing in order. I actually started the book with the final words. Um, mm. and so the final words are a letter that I wrote in 2002 when I was uh, 18 years old at the time and I was being racially profiled by police um, in my hometown on my own street. And I wrote a letter to the mayor, the police chief and the police commissioner because I wanted to hopefully do something that would help stop the situation, one, but I also feared for my life. So what I was thinking about was how to connect that story to the story I wanted to tell through this play. So I begin with a preface, which is called You Better Recognize, Othering Whiteness. Um, and the reason why I decided I wanted to at least give this an attempt was that all Often, when we think about othering, as you you know you noted at the start of our chat, we're thinking about non-white people, and I just wondered, could that be flipped? Why does that have to be the case? Um, how does that idea of I am other, but this person is not or never could be other? How does that perpetuate divides that we see in our world, or how does that perpetuate this sort of maybe false notion that 
everyone who is white is part of the in-group at all times, whereas the other sort of capital O, thinking about maybe a black person like me, for instance, is part of the out-group. So I define in that short preface um, just what I'm thinking about in terms of the white other and also how that connects to the concept of anti-blackness um, within pretty much any of the texts that I look at uh, and pretty much any of the characters that you might look at if you're defining them as white others, um, you'll see that there is some connection to anti-blackness. Um, and it can be subtle or it can be very overt, like we see with Black Macbeth, right? Um, he's not being called that as a compliment. Mm, right, right. And so the second part of the book then moves past the acknowledgments and into the introduction where... I sort of lay out for readers in a maybe sort of pop culture way, if you will, how this concept of the white other is applicable in our modern world. Um, Michael Jackson's uh, song from the early 90s, Black or White, um, you know, it don't matter if you're black or white. Um, and we know that we live in a world where it absolutely does matter. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it also matters if one is white other in a given moment or situation. And so... I'm really interested in the introduction about how whiteness is negotiated. Um, I draw on work from like Claudia Rankine, as well as uh, Toni Morrison, Arthur Little Jr., and Lauren S. Cardin to help make those points. Um, and then I set out to define both whiteness and blackness so that my readers can see how those terms work together um, and one actually reinforces the other. And then... I move into a section called decentering whiteness and um, I actually touch on Romeo and Juliet there because there are all of these moments in these texts that if we're sitting in a theater or classroom and we're just reading it or we're watching a film, we're absorbing all of this language that we don't necessarily have time to really process mm. in the way that we're able to in the book. And sometimes the messages are not they're beautiful in terms of how they're written, but when you strip them down to what is actually being said, what's being compared to what, um, how does it put, you know, blackness down versus elevating whiteness in a particular moment? I mean, that happens a lot. That helps us see that there are, there are things for us to think about in these texts. I then have four chapters, and I won't give summaries of each of them, but I start the book with Titus Andronicus, partly because it's my favorite Shakespeare play. Mm, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes it, it is my favorite uh, for a number of, of good reasons not because it's shakespeare's most violent play but um, it was introduced to me when i was an undergrad and it honestly was the play that helped me see i might have something to say about shakespeare and that shakespeare had something to say to me mm. uh, so that's that's why in part with titus and then also, it's a play in which we have this structure of Romans, Goths, and then the Blackmore Aaron. And what I was intrigued by with Titus is that it kind of serves as a teaching tool for me, for readers who come into the book, um, you know, from the beginning, because the play includes a black character, right? Aaron the Moor. But it also has these divisions between these outsider white characters, mm. the, the Goths, and then, of course, the Romans who are in Rome and living in and as part of the dominant culture. And so it really crystallizes right away, I think, um, the nuances uh, within racial whiteness, but then also how it's not so 
it's not so static, right? Like in some of the play uh, texts, even characters who appear like the Macbeths, for instance, as part of the um, you know dominant culture or the in-group to, to use your word from earlier, um, they can shift. And so that's what I love about this concept of the white other and the interracial color line is that it allows us to see the shifting nature of race and that race is actually not something that is fixed, but it's a, it's a construct. It's something that helps us organize our society. And it's not something that's just based on skin color and as the white other shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Othering, it seems like otherers are going to other. It's like they'll, you know, if, if you're talking about a religion, they'll find heretics, almost any group that becomes dominant, if they become dominant by othering some other group, they'll eventually turn on themselves or they'll they'll need someone new to to fit into the other. And it's almost, you know, you see it with immigrants, you see it with just all kinds of different groups that are given this. It just seems like it's almost like a state of mind or a, a psychological maneuver in order to gain power by using this. What I appreciate about your work is that the white othering of black people and now the white othering of other white people, it's almost like the the one that's got the, the longest history and kind of the deepest roots in the way we try to get along as a society. And it, it really helps to unpack with somebody like Shakespeare, where we're all reading it because we're trying to, you know, improve ourselves and, and sort of absorb the lessons of of psychology and history and and the language and everything he puts forward but but it can be easy to kind of read that in a casual way and look for you know write an essay about jealousy or write an essay about young love or something and and kind of miss what we're getting in there which Shakespeare was kind of it was kind of central to him at this point in history mhm mm um i love the way that you just formulated that because i think you're absolutely right uh and just I'm going to unpack all of that, what you just said. But, you know, Toni Morrison has a great book that was pivotal for my thinking. It's called The Origin of Others. And she says just what you just said in terms of thinking about how othering is a process. Um, it is some it's learned behavior and it is absolutely about power and maintenance of dominance. Mm -hmm. And so you are so right like this. in it's not just limited to race. And one of the reasons why I said I love what you just said is because I take it out into the world at the end of the book. That's why I conclude with the letter that I wrote, because I'm using Shakespeare's comedy of errors, for instance, to get people to think about what does it mean to sort of racially profile or profile or be a victim of mistaken identity, for instance, um, or be a victim who does not even get to define their identity? Because um, That play is great in that respect. But I'm also interested in people seeing how it's applicable outside of the play. And so that's why I brought in the letter. But this is something that I think about even as I watch TV. Like I love soap operas, um, for instance. And I see this character or this figure of the white other play out even, you know, on the bold and the beautiful, for instance. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. The woman, the darker hair, who's the villain and who is evil and is outcast from the sort of main group in that show. And um, not to say that she hasn't done bad things, but again, part of why she's done bad things lends itself to this process of othering. Why do we put people in certain categories who do certain things versus others?
Yeah, right. And Shakespeare, I mean, he's othering the Welsh and the French and, you know, the, like whoever is kind of a threat, but it, it does flip around where it's not just to put people down, but to try to kind of connect with the in-group. It's the in-group's way of, of identifying with one another, almost like a, a, a password or something that gets passed along among uh, people who know the right thing. And, you know, we'll, let's, let's be not like them. Let's not like cheese the way they do and so on. Yeah, that's one of the lessons that I think we get from these texts, right? Because there's these forces in them, but there are also moments of resistance, um, if characters can. But what it ultimately allows us to see is the complexity of our humanity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, when again, just taking you back to that image of this line and the sort of racial spectrum, it's incredibly complex. And I think it gets even more complex when we consider that even within you know, whiteness. I'm thinking about, um, I don't think you mentioned the Irish, for instance, when you were just, mm -hmm. you know, that's another example. Um, um, we're seeing how it is a matter at times of convenience for people or a person to belong to a particular group as opposed to not belonging to that group. And just, you know, you could be in it today and out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it, it, it does seem like there are a couple of lessons here. One is, you know, if you are othering, um, is are you really being your best self? Are you really being as as empathetic as you might be or as just as you might be? And the other lesson is, well, if this is part of your way of walking through the world, What's going to happen when people other you? You know, you're going to be old at some point. You're going to be, uh, you know, you may have some kind of physical disability at some point, or or you may just encounter a group that others you for some other reason. Like it's it's kind of it might feel good. It might feel like it's a way of being strong or a way of uniting with like-minded people. But it's sort of a, uh, you know, it can it can turn around to bite you as well if this is the world that we're living in yeah and i think uh folks will see that in the first chapter on titus that's kind of what happens right um titus begins to play as this um roman general who's revered and there's a deterioration of that throughout the course of the play and in the process titus does actually make the transition from being the sort of ideal Roman figure to being less than ideal. And part of that has to do with the fact that he proves himself as equally capable of being barbaric, just like the barbaric Goths and the barbaric Black Moor in the play. And I'm sort of quoting there. I, I don't think that, but um, it shows us that, again, any, as you just said, right, like here, it could be this one way today, and totally different tomorrow, and that these changes, again, show us this fluctuating nature, not only of race, but just of these social categories that we have to sort of demarcate who belongs where in our society. Mm. What I kind of like about that example, too, is that it kind of suggests that we're not going to head back to Shakespeare and say, aha, I've caught you, I've caught you here, I've caught you there, and I can... I can expose you for something you were doing here. Maybe there's some of that. But there's also some sense of we can appreciate that Shakespeare, whether he was aware of this or not, was kind of broad-minded enough that he could 
convey the complexity which would let us uh, interpret and analyze and study and learn from and kind of find his place to be even deeper because we're aware of these rather than shallower. Absolutely. And I, again, I think that word is key, right? The complexity that is built into these rich texts is in part what allows someone like me to sit with a, a play like Titus for so long and extract that kind of meaning from it and then see, you know, well, hey, can this apply to this word? Can it apply to that one? And once it kind of snowballs in that way, um, you do get an appreciation not only for Shakespeare's complexity as a dramatist, but just also how, um, I don't want to say, how thorough Shakespeare was of really trying to make people think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love teaching Shakespeare um, because and talking about Shakespeare is because I have not read anything by Shakespeare that doesn't make me think and in critical ways that I find always matter to the world around me. Mm, we have a, a quote that I'll often use here, which is from uh, one of my heroes, Dr. Johnson, and he, he was, was talking about someone else who he didn't really like, but he would, you know, they would argue and he would say, he calls forth all my powers. Mm. <laughs> It's like Shakespeare is calling forth all your powers. Hey, you got to use all those faculties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's leave things there. The book is called Shakespeare's White Others. Uh, David Sterling Brown, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, as promised, let's hear uh, my last book. Shilpi Suneja was here to talk about her book, House of Caravans, and Selman Rushdie's classic novel, Midnight's Children, and her own novel, which kind of followed in the aftermath of it. After our conversation, I asked her a special question. Okay, we're joined now by Shilpi Suneja, author of the novel House of Caravans. Shilpi, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Uh, tough question. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a book by Proust or a Balzac book. Mm, um, yeah. Balzac is actually my absolute favorite writer even more than Rusty. Or it could be the Bhagavad Gita because when people in my family begin to die, they turn to the Gita. And after a lifetime of rebellion, I might actually conform. Or I have another option. <laughs> okay. It could be an, an indigenous work such as the Kuulipo, which is the Hawaiian creation genealogy. I spent a lot of time in Hawaii recently because I'm getting a PhD there. Mm. But I think I might just expand the definition of text and read the ocean or the stars. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, oh, you mean the literally the ocean and the stars? Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, well, let's unpack all these. So what would you be getting if you were reading a Balzac novel, let's say? Oh, my God. The thing that I love about Balzac is that he's obsessed with money. 
the literal money that is exchanged between people, between poor relations and slightly better off relations, and his descriptions of things from the smallest scrape on the wall to, you know, the boulevards of Patty, his descriptions are excellent. So he's one writer after my heart. Yeah. And money and one's relationship toward it, one's attitude toward it as being a motivator. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. As a plot point. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> okay. And then the next thing you mentioned, I think, was... The Gita. Oh, the Gita. Right, right. So what would what would that bring you in the in the final moments. So I think, again, this is this is one book that apparently contains all the wisdom of the universe, and I haven't even opened it just because of, you know, whatever, various political reasons. But I think I might, maybe by the time I am close to opening my last book, maybe by that time, there'll be a fabulous translation of it and a sort of a syncretic version where... You know, it compares the Gita to the Quran, and there's Bible verses thrown in there as well. Mm. Um, I would like to understand what the hype is all about. Yeah. Why does everyone think this book is on par with the Bible? Yeah, and at that point, it'd be it's now or never. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then you said some Hawaiian indigenous origin myths? Yes, either that or reading the ocean and the stars. So I spent some time in Hawaii because I am getting a PhD at a university there. And, you know, the indigenous idea is that nature is text as well. The ocean is text. So when a surfer goes out to surf in the morning, he needs to learn how to read the ocean. You know, he needs to learn how to read the waves, uh, where the swell is coming from, how long, how late. These are things that I can only begin to imagine, but a seasoned surfer or even a swimmer or a fisher would know so much more about how to live with the ocean and finally to protect it because we're not the only creatures with literature and language. There are so many other species out there that create and do a far better job of living in harmony. So, Mm. yeah. That's beautiful. And how would you read the stars as text? Uh, for navigation, for one. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we could tell a lot of stories just by thinking about the cosmology and and the constellations. I've only just started thinking about this, so I'm not an expert at all, but I hope to find experts who can guide me into the, that kind of harmonious living. I'm still not there yet, though. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know, it's nice because I think one of the things, I mean, I've been asking this question for a long time now, and so often I think the the frame of reference people have is that they will be in a hospital bed hooked up to machines and, you know, maybe in a quiet moment they'll be able to pick up a, a book and read it. But I love the idea that you would be outside and able to look up at the stars and you'd be far enough away from light pollution that you'd actually be able to see them (laughs) and you'd be near the ocean. And it's a much better way to imagine, I think, the final book that one is reading. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's where you spend your time. And I'm just so grateful that I got to live in Hawaii. Um, It just makes you think about the world completely differently. So. Okay, Shilpi Suneja, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. 
Okay, there we go. My thanks to Shilpi Suneja for that lovely response. And of course, to David Sterling Brown for being here. You can find their books at bookstores near you. More good suggestions. <laughs> the word just caught in my throat. More good suggestions, I was trying to say, for your holiday lists for you and your book-loving friends. Mike Palindrome will be here soon. Speaking of book-loving friends, we're going to tackle a classic short story by D.H. Lawrence, and we'll talk with a scholar who has taken a look at the role of books in wartime. We also have Margaret Cavendish. <laughs> oh, jeez. Another word that caught in my throat. Three-syllable words are giving me trouble this morning. Ah, okay, here we go. We also have Margaret Cavendish coming up soon. And a new look at modernist novels and the way that China's presence in Africa has been treated by some of Africa's greatest contemporary writers. So stay tuned for those episodes. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.